0: Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. I'm going to talk about what that means this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Father, we pray Your your Spirit uh, to teach us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You will uh, bring understanding to these words. We pray You'll take us to a new place in getting what You're talking about here, Lord. Why You said what You said, when You said it, and what all that means for us here 2,000 years later. As we sang, as we prayed before, we sing often of the cross. We don't often sing of ourselves on the cross. I pray You'll help us understand a little more of what these things may mean. And bless this time that we have together, Lord, to Your name and to Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've heard the well-worn phrase. Perhaps you've used it. We all have a cross to bear. It's just my cross to bear. According to the Dictionary of Idioms... A cross to bear literally means, quote, an unpleasant situation or responsibility that you must accept because you cannot change it. Unfortunately, the idiomatic way we use the phrase is not what Jesus meant. I've got serious family problems. It's it's just my cross to bear. My business is really suffering in this economy. It's my cross to bear. I've got arthritis. It's my cross to bear. I've got cancer. It's my cross to bear. I'm bipolar. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. I've got these problems in my life. It's my cross to bear. And the problem with this way of thinking and using the phrase in this manner is it causes us to trudge through the day as martyrs to our own circumstances. It's just my cross to bear. No, it's not. We have no idea what we're saying. Some will use that phrase as, as though they're bravely accepting God's sovereign plan for them to suffer through their lives. And that's not it either. It's just my cross to bear. When we use the phrase loosely like that, what we really end up doing, in my opinion, is we carelessly cheapen the message of Jesus and the cross. Which is far bigger and far deeper than the circumstances of your everyday life and mine. It's much more to say that we bear a cross. What does it really mean? Now, I'm sure many of you have heard Jesus say this before. You've heard the verse, perhaps read it many times over your life. For those of you who haven't, hear it again. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it's one of those that for me growing up, I heard so many times, it just became, yeah, i got to do the cross thing. <laughs> deny self, take a cross, follow him. Got it. And I didn't get it. And I missed it. And it's It's something far deeper to understand in the life that we live following after Jesus, if we would really follow after Jesus. So what does it mean? What does it mean to take up my cross? First, understand the cross is at the very core of Christian faith. Without the cross, without the crucifixion, without the sacrifice of Jesus, we have nothing to believe in. We have no hope of salvation The whole thing is nothing but a religious exercise and therefore not worth paying any attention to. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the text before us this morning, what's going on here, and this is one of those times where... I think it's always important to understand the context, but it really changes the whole meaning of what's happening when you think about when it's taking place, when Jesus started to say what he said. We come here at the end of chapter 8 to the turning point of Jesus' life and ministry, where you can see visually he turns a corner and heads in a brand new direction. It's the pivotal juncture, because here in chapter 8 of the book of Mark, Jesus now sets his sights directly on the cross. And he doesn't look back. In fact, from here forward, he begins to head south. The gospel makes it clear that Jesus chooses the direction and that this is just not an unpleasant situation or a responsibility that he must accept because he cannot change it. That's the idiomatic use of the phrase. No, Jesus heads this direction. And from this point forward, and you've got to see this clearly, Jesus is cross-training His disciples. Cross-training. He takes them in over the next three chapters. He takes them into a season, brief though it may be, as they begin to make their way south... A season of cross-training. They will start up at Caesarea Philippi, as we'll see in just a moment. That's up in the northern area of Israel, just south of, the, of Mount Hermon. Southwest corner of Mount Hermon. They'll begin to make their way down. They'll make a brief pause there in Capernaum on the way down. And then from there, they will head straight down into Judea. And Jesus will not go back to Galilee until after the resurrection. Heading down into Judea, making their way all the way up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Where Jesus Christ will be crucified. And he takes the first step right here in Mark chapter eight, cross-training his disciples. Look over at Mark chapter nine, verse thirty. Mark chapter nine, verse thirty. From there they went out and he began and began to go through the Galilee. And note this he did not want anyone to know about it for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he has been killed he will rise three days later but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him what's happening here he takes them on this private trek now down through the Galilee but he takes them on paths probably not typically traveled because he doesn't want anyone to know where he and the disciples are why? he's training them he's cross training them up in the morning, talking about the cross. Through the day, talking about the cross. Walking through the paths. Those of you who have been in Israel, perhaps they were on the Arbel Pass. But walking those paths through the Galilee, secretly, quietly, just Jesus and the disciples, on a mission of cross training. Look over at chapter 10, verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. This is unusual. Typically, Jesus walked right in the midst of them. But He has set out. He's pressing on ahead. And they noticed that those who followed, they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and He began to tell them what was going to happen to Him. Saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later he will rise again. I'm pointing this out because we have to understand how absolutely clear Jesus was about what was going to happen. There is no reason save unbelief. There is no reason the apostles shouldn't have seen it coming. Because Jesus says, This is what's going to happen. This is where we're headed. We are going to the cross and I am going to die. And he spells it out in no uncertain terms. The Bible says plainly communicating this to the apostles. Cross training. Why? Why was it so important for Jesus to do this? You know, one reason could simply be his great compassion. Because Jesus knew even with advance warning, the apostles are still going to be caught off guard. They're still going to fall apart. Just as the prophecy said they would. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This prophecy, 400 years before Christ, now begins to come true. And we know it historically, don't we? That when the Gentiles, when the Romans came upon Jesus there in the garden, And when they took him away, the apostles scattered like frightened sheep. I was just walking down the path this morning coming here. It was dark. I had my little flashlight on. And as I walked down the path, I could see the sheep all gathered right on the path, having made a mess, a mockery, if you will, of my path. They were sitting there on the path. And the second they saw me coming, they just took off. And I thought, just like the apostles. But I don't think Jesus was cross-training the apostles simply as a compassionate caution. You know, boys be aware, here's what's coming. It's going to be a tough weekend. He was cross-training the apostles for far more than a weekend exercise. And He cross-trains you and He cross-trains me for far more than what happens here on a weekend. Far more than a Sunday experience or exercise. The cross-training that Jesus does for His apostles and in turn does for His followers Goes to our very lives. It goes to how we live. It goes to our understanding of the gospel, yes, but far more than this. The apostles would need cross training now for the lives that they were going to live later. At the same time, the early church needed cross training for all they were about to go through. Keep your finger there and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, where Paul writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's absolutely true. For people who don't believe, for people who are outside of Christian faith, by their own decision, they're just not interested, they haven't gone down that road, it's not something that that attracts their attention, for those people, typically, talk about the cross, is kind of foolish. It's kind of silly tragic perhaps that historically this person called Jesus was crucified. We can feel bad about that, but, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Why would he do that? You know? And what really does that have to do with me? It's foolishness, Paul says. But the second your spirit clicks on, the moment you begin to believe on well, the cross, the cross is to us who are being saved the power of God. Verse 19, Paul says, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So, you know, the best thing you can do when you come to the Lord is don't be so smart. (laughs) Don't be so clever. I've got it all together. You may think you do, you're not as smart as you think you are. Perhaps. You ought to bow to the more wise God. Where is the wise man, verse 20? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews seek for signs and Greeks seek. Search for wisdom. That's a great way. You can draw a line right there. Jews seek for signs. The Eastern world is looking for a sign. The Western world, the Greeks, and on out to the Americas, the Western world, well, we're looking looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called Both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What is Paul doing? Cross-training. Cross-training. The moment you become wise in yourself, you need to go back to the cross. You need to consider the cross. What does the cross mean in our lives? What does the cross mean to us? The apostles needed cross-training, so Jesus took time there to take them aside and train them up in understanding the coming crucifixion. The first century church needed cross-training. Many of them would be hung on crosses, would die on crosses, including Peter. And you and I need cross-training as well. Sometimes I think being separated by 2,000 years, we can get real comfortable and think this really doesn't apply to us. We're missing it if we think that. We need cross-training. The cross is at the heart of our faith. And here's the problem, gang. When believers in Jesus get away from the cross, we muddy the message. When we get away from the cross of Jesus, when we step back from it, we confuse our calling. When we forget the stipulations of Jesus at the very beginning of this cross-training that He does, starting in Mark chapter 8 we lose sight of our very reason and purpose for being here as a church. Now, I have to commend Leslie, because last night's Harvest Festival was quite a festival. It was packed in here. I mean, I, more people than we've ever had at this type of thing. It was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. Jake went into the dunk tank, made my life. It was a good night. <laughs> okay. But that's not, that's not why we're here. And it was wonderful. It was great to have the fellowship, And we will do this every year. I love the fellowship. And we need more fellowship times like these. Times just to be together as a family. First service and second service in the same place, you know. And it was good. But it is not our purpose for being here. Please understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm saying it's not our purpose. It's fine to do it. It's fine for us to have fellowship activities. It's fine for the church to be involved in all manner of things. But it is not our purpose. What is our purpose? We have a cross to bear every one of us, and collectively as a fellowship and the church as a whole, we have a cross to bear and it may be far more than we think it is. So, Jesus had taken the apostles 25 miles up from the Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, named by Herod's son Philip. Caesarea Philip's town. You know? It was his name that he put on it there at the western base, I said, of Mount Hermon. The headwaters of the Jordan formed together at that place, coming from three different uh, rivers or sources coming all into one, beginning the Jordan River. There at Caesarea Philippi, many of you have been there now, there's a great rock cliff face that stands, a massive rock, a Petra if you will. And it is at that place that we believe Jesus was with the apostles. And Peter made that astounding, divinely inspired confession. There at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ. Remember the story. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah or one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Jesus presses them. And Peter just blurts out in wonderful, blessed blurting, you are the Christ. But Peter goes from stupendous to stupid like that. I mean, literally within moments, he is the first person to misunderstand the meaning of the cross. You are the Christ. Jesus in verse 30 warned them to tell no one about Him. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Wednesday night we talked about this. Why all of a sudden is Jesus talking about the cross? Because now that the idea of Messiah has been proclaimed, He has to retrain their thinking as to who Messiah really is. Peter says, you're Messiah. And he's thinking great political ruler or great religious ruler, politics and religion. That's where Peter's mind was. That's where all the Jewish people were thinking. When Messiah comes, He's going to overthrow our oppression and begin the kingdom right then and now. And Jesus says, no, 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 wait a minute. Okay, you proclaim proclaimed me to be Messiah. You're right. But you've got to understand Messiah has to first suffer. Isaiah 53. It's already been proclaimed. Messiah has to go through this first. Yeah, the kingdom's going to come. Not yet. And so He immediately begins this, this cross-training with the apostles. But he's stating the matter plainly, verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter didn't understand. And turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And I think, wow. Did Jesus just call Peter Satan? That's a little harsh. No. I think Jesus called Satan, Satan. I think Satan was right there. Remember the Gospel of Luke tells us that after Satan had tempted Jesus, he left Him for a more opportune time? This is one of those times. Here's an opportunity. Peter is saying, Jesus, we got Your back. you got 12 of us. We stand with You. You shouldn't be going to Jerusalem. You shouldn't be going to the cross. By no means should You die, Jesus! And it would be very easy for the the Son of Man just to say, Boy, you're right, Peter. Maybe we should dial this down a bit. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. He's not slamming Peter. He's saying, Peter, you were divinely inspired a moment ago and now you are demonically inspired. In fact, you're satanically inspired to say what you're saying. It's interesting, he says, seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Peter and Jesus had stepped aside at this moment and Jesus looks over, he sees the rest of the guys and says, Get behind me, Satan. Casting Satan back pushing back against the enemy in a critical moment. And this is the first time, gang, that Jesus would speak plainly of His crucifixion. The first time. By the way, speaking of Satan, Satan is always, always, always into the interests of man. He loves man's interests. Remember Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. It wasn't Peter that had his mind on man's business. It was Satan. Satan wants you to be happy. Satan wants you to have all your dreams come true. Satan wants your life just to be everything you dreamed it could be so he can take it away. He wants you to ride as high as possible on joy and satisfaction and and high living so that he can undermine you and bring you crashing down because the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But he sets you up in the meantime. He's very interested in in the interests of man. And the question is, are we as a church body, are we interested in the things of man or are we setting ourselves on the interests of God? That's got to be first and foremost in our hearts, in our minds. Man's interests always deny the cross because it hurts. Because it's painful. Because it's hard. And the interest of man says, no, I don't want that. But the interest of God says, it has to happen. Man's interests are self-preserving. Man's interests are self-sustaining. Man's interests are self-centered. The cross is not. Never has been never will be. And this is where it gets deadly serious for us, for you see, immediately after declaring his own death by crucifixion, Jesus begins to talk about yours and mine. Picking up in verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you would honestly follow Jesus, you have to go the way of the cross. There is no other way. There is no other direction. I want you to think about three things regarding this idea of taking up my cross. Three things this morning. Number one, taking up my cross denies chance to embrace choice. You need to understand we're not talking about something that happens to you. You don't become a Christian and then hold on for the ride because something's going to happen. I don't know what it is. Something's going to happen to me and I've got no say here. No. No, taking up your cross denies chance. It denies a life that happens to you in favor of a life that you choose. Jesus chose the cross. It wasn't an unfortunate or unpleasant situation. It's not something that I have to accept because I can't change it. The cross is something I choose. I will go the way of the cross. I accept this, Jesus, just as you did. Sometimes people think the cross was a startling turn of events. Wow, if Jesus had only not gone down to Jerusalem and gotten caught... It was planned from the beginning. It was planned from before the beginning. And the cross training of the disciples is proof positive of this. There to the north of the Galilee, He begins to train them. He trains them through the Galilee. He trains them into Judea. He trains them up to Jerusalem. He talks about it all that final week and then He's crucified. He knew the whole time. He knew far before that. Isaiah 50 verse 7. The prophet prophesies by the spirit of cross. For the Lord God helps me; therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. What does that mean? His eyes were eyes of steel as he looked to the cross. He set his face like flint, and he headed to the cross that he had chosen. It was Jesus' choice. Mark ten forty-five. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Before Jesus showed up on Earth, He made the choice. This is why I came. And by the way, it was his life to give. It was not taken from him. He says that, John 8, uh, John 10:18, no one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority <laughs> to take it up again, which he would 3 days later. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this was the path Jesus chose and if you're going to follow Jesus deny yourself and take up your cross then you got to make the choice it doesn't happen to you by chance it's a choice that you make just as it was the choice Jesus made or made this was the path that he chose before time began Which is why John in Revelation 13.8 calls Him the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But in the same way He chose the cross, Jesus invites you, invites me to choose it. Mark 8.34, and this is a A verse that really stands out. In your Bibles, you should highlight it, circle it, star it, do whatever you need to so it just stands out and leaps off the page at you. Because Mark 34, in this verse, Jesus spells out his terms and conditions for discipleship. Jesus' terms and conditions for discipleship. Those of you who have iPhones know this. A screen recently appeared on my iPhone 4S. I don't have a 5. I'm one of the previous generation now. And, and this, this screen appeared touting the new iOS 6, which is the new platform for, the, uh, for Apple, you know, the iOS 6. And I, I held off a few days. I didn't want to mess up my whole thing. I didn't want to upgrade to this iOS 6. I thought the iOS fine, 5 was just fine. But before I could update the software, when I finally decided to do it, there was a little box that says, please read the terms and conditions for using iOS 6, and then check this box. And I began to scroll down, and scroll down, and scroll down. And I think 17 and a half pages later, you get to the bottom of the terms and conditions, and it's all in legal speak, and it's difficult to understand. And and you know these terms and conditions that you check right now, as soon as iOS 7 comes out, there's going to be a whole new set of terms and conditions. And I thought about that in relation to Mark 8.34 and how simple Jesus' terms and conditions are and how unchanging Jesus' terms and conditions are. The terms and conditions He set forth for followers 2,000 years ago are the exact same terms and conditions He sets before us this morning. And the question is, are you going to check the box? Do you accept the terms and conditions of Jesus Christ? His terms and conditions, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These are the terms and conditions of discipleship. This is what it means, what a disciple must do. But be clear before you make it, that the only path for the follower of Jesus Christ leads to death before life. Crucifixion before resurrection... Humiliation before exaltation. See, it's the exact opposite of Satan. Satan wants to exalt you so he can rip you down. Satan wants to show you life so he can kill you. Jesus says, if you want to get to life, you're going to have to go through death. If you want to be in the place of exaltation, it begins by humiliation, and He walked it out first. In my opinion, the single greatest travesty in the American church today is the marginalization of the cross. It's, it's making it less than it is. I want to quote Pastor Alistair Begg. Some of you listen to Alistair Begg from time to time on Truth For Life Radio. Excellent, excellent Bible teacher. And in a message he gave called, Conditions of Discipleship, based on this passage, he said, what Jesus says in these statements, which are clear and pungent and striking, they challenge any notion of discipleship which we may think involves simply a few minor adjustments to our lifestyle. They challenge many contemporary views of what it means to follow Jesus. And Alistair Bake says, I'm increasingly convinced that many people have turned their backs on the story of Christianity not because they've examined it and found it untrue, but because they've met Christians and have found it unbelievably trivial. It really doesn't make that much difference. <laughs> I notice you go to church on Sunday, but other than that, how are you different than me? How is your life any different than my life? There's a trivial difference. Why do I waste my time? Why would I want to get up Sunday? I can sleep in. I can enjoy the whole day. I can focus on my interests. Why would I do that? Trivial. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And that's the danger when we marginalize the cross that ultimately we just make the cross void in Christianity. There are a lot of churches out there that have made the cross void. The cross doesn't matter. We're all going to be saved anyway. We're all going to go home anyway. It doesn't make any difference. Tell me tell me the reason Jesus went to the cross if everyone's just saved anyway. If it's unnecessary what He did, why did He do it? Marginalizing, trivializing, voiding the cross of Christ. Second thing to note, taking up my cross not only denies chance to embrace choice, it denies continuity to embrace change. It denies continuity to embrace change or a changed life. If I claim the cross of Christ, I don't just continue on as I always have. I don't just keep walking down the same old road doing the same old dumb things. If I do, I have not accepted Jesus' terms and conditions. I have not embraced what He called me to. If my life is the same as it was the day before, I became a Christian deny self take up cross and follow him by the way I don't think these are three conditions at the end of verse 34 I think there are two he must deny himself and take up his cross and that's how you follow me that what we often think of as the third is the summation of the first two you want to follow Jesus you got to deny yourself you got to take up your cross and in so doing you follow him That's the only way to follow Him. But if we don't do the first two, we're really not doing the third. And that's what sometimes happens in Christianity as we skip over the first two and say, I'm following Jesus. Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Verse 35, Jesus went on to say, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And that's the great paradox that Jesus describes. The great paradox of life, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you'll lose your life for my sake and the Gospel, you're going to save it. And once I've made the choice to be changed, I just can't travel down the old road. I can't be continuous in my old life. I've got to live a changed life. Listen to Paul's description in Romans chapter 6. He's talking about baptism, by the way and in case it confused anybody that Paul in 1 Corinthians 17 said Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel what he was saying is it doesn't matter if I baptize or Apollos baptizes or the baptizer is not the issue being baptized is but the person who does it is a non-issue those of you who think Pastor Rick has to put on the waiters and baptize you or those of you who think Pastor Rick should not put on the waiters but has to baptize you are missing the point it has nothing to do with the baptizer. It has to do with the Holy Spirit of the living God. It has to do with you and Jesus. Do you realize, and I have looked this up and there's nowhere in Scripture that says otherwise, you could baptize yourself. I mean, you could. There should be witnesses there because it's a public proclamation, but it has nothing to do with the guy in the water or the girl in the water with you. It has to do with your faith. In being baptized. So Paul says, I, I, That's not my purpose to attach my name to your baptism. My purpose is to preach the gospel. But then in Romans chapter 6, Paul describes baptism in a beautiful way, comparing it to death, which is why we immerse, by the way, because no one sprinkles a little bit of dirt on the head of a corpse and thinks that's good enough.
1: <laughs>
0: well, you don't, do you? The whole picture is going under and being buried. Being buried with Christ and raised to walk in a newness of life. But then Paul says, Romans chapter 6 verse 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, Baptism, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, In order that our body of sin might be done away with, So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That is denying the continuity of my old life, And embracing a changed life. A radically altered life. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. To accept Jesus' sacrifice at Calvary is evident only as I embrace a changed life. And i got to tell you, you're hearing this for the first time, I had to deal with this all week. It's often the case because I have to study. I had to ask myself several times this week, am I still holding on to self-preservation? Am I still clinging to self-protection or self-fulfillment? How much am I thinking about in my daily life how happy Rick is? And is Rick getting what he wants? And is this the life that I set out to live? I've been convicted this week. Am I really that selfish. In the battle for the self and the soul, no one has to train you, no one has to train me on how to be selfish. We come about that naturally. You know, there are no books on the shelves like with these titles. How to Remain Selfish in an Altruistic World. Now, there are all kinds of books on the shelves on how to be selfish. They're called self-help books. (laughs) And they are pure selfishness because they are all centered in how you can get the best for you. And that, my friends, is a message 100% contrary to the cross. 180 degrees opposite of where Jesus is going and of where He invites you and invites me to go. Taking up my cross denies continuity to embrace a changed life. And tragically, when Christianity becomes self-help, when all we do is add Jesus into the overall mix of our lives and what we're going to be about anyway, we trivialize His death. And we trivialize trivialize our own. I mean, think about this. Put yourself into the, the moment when Jesus is describing, taking up your cross and following me. The apostles didn't have 2,000 years of church. All they had was the experience of the day. What was a man carrying his cross on his way to do? Die. There was no other picture. People weren't walking around in Jesus' day with little crosses on chains around their necks. It would have been disgusting, abhorrent, upsetting. The Jews knew they could walk down the road at any given time and come upon a fellow Jew hung up on a cross by Rome. It was brutal. It was execution. It was a one-way trip. You saw a person carrying their cross. They were not coming back. They were going to die. And you go this way. You follow Jesus and you will lose your life. The Greek word in verse 35 for lose is apolumai. Apolumai means to destroy or cause to perish. You're going to destroy your life. Which is why on occasion we've, we've said in here, if you really want to follow after Jesus, He's going to mess you up. <laughs> he's going to ruin your life. He will. All those self-help books are going to have to go in the trash because it's no longer going to be about you. He's going to mess up what you think your dreams and goals and aspirations are, your interests. He's going to mess with those. Come and die. That's the invitation of the cross. Come and And die. What a wonderful invitation. I mean, it's really not perhaps the best sermon for an evangelistic outreach, and yet it is the core message. Perhaps more than anything else, a lost person needs to hear Jesus say, come and die that you might live. Come and die to all that old stuff. That stuff that if we're really honest with ourselves, it's not as good as we think it is. And in fact, it's killing us. The invitation to come and die is not meant to be a nice invitation. What it is, is the most profound offer of sacrificial love ever spoken to man. Read on, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, what have we got here? 80, 90 years tops? That's, that's on a good run? And then What? Great, you yeah, had 90 years. And then what? So Jesus poses a most unsettling question in verse 37. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You're standing before the Lord. It's all over. Life's behind you. There's no going back. There's no picking it up again. You've come to the point. You've died. Now you're before the Lord. And you've got a soul before Him. What's that worth? What are you going to pay To get in, what have you got to pay to get in? All those accomplishments back on earth, they're not worth a hell of beans when you stand before the Lord. We're refining our house right now, and uh, I had to deal with the question, one of my favorite questions in a refinance what's your net worth? I wanted to write, my net worth plus 25 cents is about worth a Starbucks cup of coffee. (laughs) My worth has been so liquidated by sin, i got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to stand before the Lord and give. I need something legitimate. I need something worthy. I need something valuable to exchange for my soul. And Jesus puts it right out there. And He's not messing around. Why? Because He loves you so desperately. Because we matter so much to Him. And He made the choice. The choice that changes a life forever. And the cross is a choice that changes my life forever should I accept it. Verse 38, and we come to a tough verse. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And our culture has worked awfully hard to remove shame. Being ashamed, that's a bad thing. If you're a parent, you don't let your kid know that you're ashamed of them. That's a bad thing. I think we've missed it. I think we misunderstand something here. Number three, taking up my cross denies closet Christianity to embrace Christ's call. It denies closet Christianity. Let me ask you this. How many people here are ashamed of something you did in your past?
1: Yeah.
0: See, this this is where this is where Western counseling psychological <laughs> thinking is way off. Don't be ashamed, but we all are. We just don't talk about it. We just push it down. Because we're not supposed to be ashamed. Hey, if you did something nasty in your past, you should be ashamed of it. I've done things I'm ashamed of. I'm certainly not going to applaud some of the sin choices that I've made in my past. Oh, remember the time? That was so great. I hurt like a dozen people. (laughs) (laughs) Paul said in Romans 6.20, when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you weren't bound to righteousness. You could do whatever you wanted sinfully when you were a slave of sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? It says your eyes have been opened and now you're looking back at all those things you thought was so cool or or so fun or so natural to do in the past and now you're ashamed of that stuff. Now that you're standing here looking back, what benefit do you have from that? And even for those who don't accept Christ, you get to a point in your life where you start to look back and you think, man, I was an idiot. That old 60's thing was a blur. Boy, that was stupid. You know? You're not proud of those things. And Paul says, what do you get from that? Nothing. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God... You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. So you've got a choice, Paul says you can be a slave to sin, and ultimately you're going to look back in shame, or you can be a slave to God, and the benefit you get is a sanctified life and eternal salvation. And there is no comparison. In verse 38, what Jesus is doing, by the way, is expanding on what he said in verse 35. <laughs> Note that he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In verse 38 he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. It's it's the opposite. If you lose your life for me, you're going to save it. But if you're ashamed of me, if you're buying into this generation, if you're living for now, That's a completely different thing. And again, we recoil a bit at the thought of Jesus being ashamed of us. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled at the idea of the acceptance of Christ, but for Him to be ashamed of me? I don't even like that thought. Listen and understand. Jesus' admonition in verse 38 is so we would not be ashamed. He says it because He doesn't want to be ashamed. Of you or of me. He doesn't want us to feel shame before him. And that's why he says it ahead of time. For him to be ashamed of me, I have to first be ashamed of him. I have to, in this life, say, I don't want this Jesus stuff. I have to reject him. I have to cling to myself, cling to this generation. In fact, you don't really have to do too much to be ashamed of Jesus. Just stay quiet. Closet Christians. Secret saints. Clandestine disciples. Oh, I believe. I just don't want anyone to know I believe. My friends, and this is tough, but if that's your Christian life, you're ashamed of Jesus. I don't know any other way to put it. He says, follow me. Taking up my cross denies closet Christianity to embrace Christ's call, which is to tell the world about Him. No matter who you are or what your background or personality type, you cannot follow Him silently. Let me ask you this. Are there any exceptions in the Great Commission? Let me read it to you. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, unless you're too young. You know? Go make disciples, unless you're too old. Teach them and and, and baptize them, unless your schedule is a little full. Go to the nations unless unless you're the quiet sort. Now I know there are some who can sit there and say, Rick, I've seen you. I know you have a tendency to be kind of extroverted. So that's easy for you. You obviously have no problem sitting up there and talking about Jesus. But I'm a quiet person. I'm an introverted person. Gang, the gospel call is for one and all. And it doesn't matter your personality type. You're no less valuable or important to Jesus if you're introverted than if you're extroverted. Yeah, the extrovert might be a big mouth like Peter. But then you've got the introvert who is still going to be in relationship with someone. Who is still going to be able to quietly express Jesus. It is the call of all of us. I'm not saying everybody has to stand up on a soapbox in a corner and shout Jesus' name, but I am saying every single one of us is called to deny ourselves, which means introverts deny your introversion, extroverts deny your extroversion because <laughs> we're the ones who tend to get in the way of the message, and take up your cross and follow after Jesus. We all have a cross to bear. Every one of us. But again, when Jesus says take up your cross, He's not talking about hanging in there with difficult life circumstances. Take up your cross. When you get cancer, take up that cross and follow Me. Having cancer and having that being connected to taking up your cross only works in as much as in that difficult circumstance, you are using it to the glory of God. Do you understand the difference? I'm not just taking up my cross because it's tough on me. I take up my cross for the benefit of somebody else. That is taking up your cross. Not talking about the way we use it. To take up your cross is an absolutely and completely others-centered proposition. It means I'm going to do whatever I have to do for your sake. For my brothers and sisters in Christ. For my friends who don't know Jesus. They're going to matter more than I matter to me. That's taking up your cross. That's following after Him. Why did Jesus carry His cross? To save you. Obviously not to save Himself. To redeem me. Obviously not to redeem himself. And so he invites us to do the same. And Paul explained it this way. 2 Corinthians four eight. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then, listen to this, don't miss this tiny little verse Paul says, So death works in us, but life in you. That has taken up my cross. Death at work in me, so that there might be life in you. I die to self, so you might live. And He calls each of us to that. We die to ourselves so that the lost world might have a shot at life. We already have life, don't we? So if I die, big deal. If I get run over by a truck, great, I'm just going to go to heaven before the rest of you. Well, what about the rapture? Hey, the dead in Christ will rise first. (laughs) Bye-bye! I mean, you know, we all have, I've said before, I, I'm, I'm waiting to fly. I don't want to die, I want to fly. You know? Well, it doesn't matter, you're gonna. If you die in Christ, you're going up first. And if you live when Christ comes, you're going up. So having that confidence and knowing that I can die to myself, I don't have that much else to live for. What about your wife and your children, Rick? They're important. But the only reason I'm living for them is so they will live for Him. Amen. Take up your cross. Follow me, He says. And that's how we do it. The cross I'm invited to take up. Understand, it's a choice, it is a change, and it is a call. Now, listen, we're not quite there yet. There's one more thing I have to tell you. Because as we think through all these things, if we are to take up our cross, we have to face a tough truth. And that is, the cross is too much to bear. Before we get all cocky and self-sure and arrogant, I'm going to take up my cross and follow Him all the way. No, Lord, we'll die before we'll let anybody do anything to You. Even if the rest fall away, Peter says, I will never fall away. I'm going to take up my cross. Wrong attitude. Because, my friends, the cross will crush you. Turn over to Mark 15. A couple of chapters over. Mark 15 and verse 20. After they had mocked Him, they took the purple robe off Him and put His own garments on Him, and they led Him out to crucify Him. Verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which by the way tells us they were known in the Christian community. So Simon of Cyrene more than likely became a believer of Jesus after carrying Jesus' cross. But they pressed into service Simon of Cyrene to bear his cross. And then they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Jesus didn't carry His cross all the way to Golgotha. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service. John just tells us Jesus carried His cross. So we know both happened. And we can only assume then that He started out carrying His cross, but it became too much for the Son of Man to bear. Beaten and scourged and slapped about the face and and punched and the crown of thorns, and the blood loss, and everything else, the the body of Jesus, the physical man, could not bear that cross. Neither can you. We need help. To take up our cross, we need help. If we will truly follow after Jesus, the time will likely come when we cannot carry our cross anymore. We just don't have the strength, and it will cause us to collapse. And in that moment of collapse... What happens then will depend on my dependency. It will depend on how much I depend on Jesus. John Corson points out this verse, I love it. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either one of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. When Jesus fell, who was there? God provided Simon of Cyrene. God had a companion. He had a carrier of the cross there to help Jesus get all the way to Golgotha so Jesus could die. In the same way, we have a companion and his name is Jesus Christ. And we do not walk this trail of blood alone. We don't bear the cross alone. We only by His strength can carry, can bear the cross. Only by the strength of the Spirit of Christ within me can I make it all the way to Calvary and beyond. Which is what Paul means, I believe, in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, that's the strength to bear the cross that we have been called to bear. But mark this, brothers and sisters, to deny self, to take up my cross, and to follow Him is an others centered proposition. May we live that way.